Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mindshifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, March 24th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people and using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website, click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, It will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives when they do that. It also tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of that to share with us, please give us a call at 563-999-3581. Once you do that, press 1 on your phone, and it will turn the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we greatly appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work 
The intention with this work is for us to be a service, and that's far easier to do when you let us know what's working for you, what isn't, what topics might be of interest, what questions you might have about the worksheet process, etc. Yesterday I did a worksheet at the beginning of the show, and um, I've done some follow-up work on that. If you have any comments or questions about that, that's one of the primary reasons we're here. We're also here to explain some of the philosophy and the dynamics of how these systems and tools work. So if you have questions about that, we can entertain those as well. And um, as always, we're grateful if anybody decides to call up and say, hey, I need help with a worksheet. I'm having a negative emotion that keeps recurring, or I keep, as I mentioned yesterday, I did my worksheet. Not so much because of a negative emotion, but because of a recurring thought about something that was in the past. And I've learned over the years that if I have a thought, and it just keeps coming back, it's probably beneficial for me to do some reality management worksheets on that and ask to be shown the origins of either the traumatic energy or the belief that keeps fueling these thoughts long after there's any benefit in revisiting the thoughts. As um, Dr. Michael Rice has shared a number of times over the years, frequently when someone does their own emotional work, and of course I'm doing emotional work on myself because my mind is trying to tell me that someone or something outside of me is responsible for my upset. And we know in this work that's just never been the case. That's not how things work. It's my mind's processing, my choice of interpretations of life events, the, the thoughts I pour my mind energy into, and that's the only thing that creates my emotional upset. And... Michael has talked a lot over the years about how when people do their own work around what their mind is telling them what somebody else said or did, in, in one way or another, their interaction with another person, in, in, in a way that is completely foreign to any thought of our just being a physical being. It is not uncommon for people to find that soon after they've done a series of their own emotional work on upset their mind is telling them is caused by someone outside of them, not too long after that, that person or persons reach out to them. And sometimes they may not have any had, had any contact for months or years, and sometimes um, there was a, a parting of the ways that was so dramatic that people swore they would never 
communicate with the other person again. And yet, um, when they do their work, people find out inexplicably other people reach out to them. It's, um, it's an energetic universe. And when I clear my energy, the energy I'm holding about someone or something else, it is not uncommon for that person to to resonate with that. Not, perhaps they don't even know why they're reaching out to me. And um, I had that experience yesterday. I finished that worksheet that I did uh, in the show yesterday. And it was about a patient who had sent me a message, and clearly the last message they sent sounded like, you will never hear from me again. And it wasn't too long after that Internet show yesterday in which I did a live worksheet. Within a couple hours of that, I received a message from that patient. So it is not the kind of thing that makes any sense if you think we are just physical beings having a physical experience. And yet, when you tap into what Dr. Michael Rice is so fond of talking about, how everything is energy and we are living in an energetic universe and everything in this energetic universe functions through the law of resonance, it makes perfect sense that if I'm holding negative energies, pain, fear, sadness, resentment, bitterness, frustration, guilt, shame, and in my mind those energies are connected with my thoughts, my memories, my last interactions with some other person, then it is it's perfectly in line with the the laws of resonance that whenever i think about that person that negative energy resonates in me and at some level conscious or otherwise it also is resonating with the other person and they may have no impetus or desire to connect with me at all or they might have a desire to connect and curse me out or attack me in some way or they may have a desire and they may act on the desire to spread negative comments about me and gossip to other people and if I clear up that energy within me, if I make a, a clear effort to disconnect my thoughts about that other person from those negative emotional states resonating within me, it makes very good sense in this energetic universe that operates from the law of resonance that whether it's at a conscious or unconscious level that shifts something in the other person and 
sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it may prompt them that shift in the energy field, that shift in the energy that I'm holding or that I have connected to my thoughts and memories of them will prompt them to to take an action. And that action is is free to be more positive, more loving, more gratitude-based when I've disconnected the negative energies in my system from my thoughts about that person. So that's just another added benefit to why I do this work, why I keep paying attention if I've got a negative thought about something hours or days after it's occurred. And on my good days when I recognize that, I pick up a reality management worksheet and apply it to the thoughts and emotions that I'm experiencing related to that situation. So we have plenty of time for comments and questions. Our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. What what would be of use to you today for, for this the next 45 minutes or so? How can we support you? What questions or comments might you have about the worksheet I did yesterday or the worksheet process itself. As Susan Bingham has pointed out, I'm listening to the book A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg. And I find it just uh, positive, uplifting, inspiring, uh, it's resonating a lot of the same teachings that I've re- enjoyed with the Course in Miracles and the Way of Mastery and Byron Katie's work and Krishnamurti's work. And it's been a while, but I, I I like to talk in this on this internet show about how I could. Approach this from an academic point of view and try to highlight and focus on differences between these schools of thought and teachings. I could. I have some academic training through the course of trying to get my doctorate and do a dissertation and do research and all that business. So I know something about the way to be critical and look for differences and highlight those differences and judge which is right and which is wrong. However, what I have found to be much more beneficial in my life, especially in the realm of this philosophical or spiritual or psychological work, is for me to look for and highlight the similarities between schools of thought and teachers. And the more I do that, the more I find the similarities. You know, you, it's one of the 
hallmarks of our psychological research that says we've got this thing in our brains called the reticular activating system. And that reticular activating system actually has us focus on and notice more of what we say we want to notice. One of the more common examples of the reticular activating system is people talk about how when you get a new car to you, whether it's a a brand new car or a used car, when you take possession of of a new vehicle for you, you will begin to see that make and model of car all over the place, which you didn't see and, and or you didn't notice seeing before you took possession of a car, before you started driving that car. And the researchers are quick to point out they've done the studies and they know that there hasn't been a dramatic increase in the number of Honda Civics or Mercedes GLs that coincides with you getting a new car. It's not that all of a sudden 27 people in your neighborhood got the same car as you or the same make. They've actually researched it. I know there's no greater number of that particular model of car in your vicinity. It's just that this part of the brain that learns to focus on what we tell it to focus on and has us notice whatever we tell it we want to notice, that part of the brain, called the reticular activating system, has you pay attention and see more of those cars, more of those models, more of that same make. So we are going to see what we're looking for far more often than not. We are going to dramatically influence our perceptual process. One of the lines in A Course in Miracles says, we must come to understand the distorting power of the way we want things to be. It is critical to understand. This bumps into something we haven't talked about for a while on the radio show, but research across disciplines now understands that the The process that we know is perception, that we've been taught is so passive. I just sit here and I open my eyes and I look around the room and I just, I see and perceive everything that's there. But the research indicates that's not even close to true. The process of perception is very active. And one way it's talked about on the CIA website in summary is to say, the process of perception does not record reality. The process 
of perception constructs reality, creates a reality. And this is why you can have seven or eight people witness an accident and you can get five, six, seven or eight different reports about what happened. So if I tell myself, I really want to see how this person is causing my upset, that's exactly what I'll see. If I tell myself, you know what, I don't like what I'm feeling right now, I think I'll pick up a reality management worksheet and plot out in the first two steps or three steps what my brain is doing with my thoughts, with my memories from the past, with my interpretations, with my biases. And then I'll put all of that aside and ask to be shown something else literally either bypassing or redirecting the reticular activating system in my brain so that it can show me something new. And again, when I do that, and I'm willing to do that on a regular basis, energetically I change the energy field that I send out from my head and my heart. And some would say there are three brains, the gut as well. So I'm, I'm changing the energy field I'm creating around me and sending out from me. And that makes perfect sense that when I change the energy field and the energy that I'm sending out, it's going to interact differently with the people around me. So that's why we do this work. That's why I did the worksheet yesterday. That's why I did some follow-up work with that. And it's fascinating. The more I do this energy work, the more I find things bubbling up from the past that test, and whether it's muscle testing or they come out in the worksheet that's where I ask to be shown and it pops into my head. These are events in my life, and I remember them, but I, w I never would have connected them energetically or emotionally to what's going on in my life today. Unless I understand every time I'm experiencing a negative emotional state, it's because I'm creating it. I'm doing something with my thought process. I'm doing something with my my choice of interpretation of life events to create what I'm experiencing. And again, because of the training of my mind, my family, my culture, I'm not trained to think that. I'm trained to think and believe that I'm only feeling and experiencing what I'm experiencing and feeling because somebody around me has done something. So I'm going to have to be willing to voluntarily change the focus of my thoughts, to question what my mind is telling me, to actively work to perceive things differently. Otherwise, what's been done in the past, what, what I've been trained to tap into and believe is just going to keep showing itself to me and my mind is going to keep convincing me 
that I'm upset because X, Y, and Z has happened or because this person or that person did or didn't do what I wanted them to do. And as far as, as long as that goes on, my mind, Michael Rice calls it an evidentiary device, my mind will simply keep producing evidence that shows me what I tell it to show me. And again, the work in this field of science and perception and neurology and physiology talks about a set of connections in the brain that they call the reticular activating system, which actively works to show me what I tell it I want to see. One of the more startling examples of this happens in a a video that the first time I saw it, I was in an auditorium of about a thousand people taking a special training. And there's a great big screen in the front of the auditorium, and they projected this video on the screen, and they said before the, the video started that they wanted us to try and count how many times the red team passed the ball. And then the video started, and there's two groups of people, some wearing red shirts, some wearing white shirts, and two balls, like a basketball or a volleyball, I forget which one. And they were in a circle, probably five or six of each color shirt, and they were throwing the ball back and forth, the red-shirted people throwing it to the red-shirted people and the white-shirted people throwing it to the white-shirted people. And when that was done, the video was done, they asked us, okay, so what's your best guess about how many times the ball was passed by the red-shirted group? And then did anybody count the white-shirted ball passings? Okay. And then did anybody see the person in the gorilla suit walk out of the side of the stage, walk into the center of the people passing the balls, wave his hands above his head, and then walk out. I sat there absolutely dumbfounded because I was watching the screen and I was counting how many times the red-shirted people passed the ball, and I saw nothing of a person in a gorilla suit. And then they replayed the video, and there's no two ways about it. It was there. And it wasn't a second video because some of the people who watched it the first time saw the, the person in the gorilla suit. That's the reticular activating system in play. That's what Dr. Michael Rice calls your, your brain, your mind at that level is an evidentiary device, and it will show you sometimes only what you tell it to show you. Sometimes it will show you what you tell it to show you and some other stuff. But in this case, I told my mind, help me count how many times the red-shirted people are passing the ball, and that's all it showed me. 
it completely blocked from my awareness. And it, it had to be registering in my eyes because I'm looking at the same screen as the people, you know, down the row from me who saw the person in the gorilla suit. But that's the power of the reticular activating system. That's the power of the distortion of how I want things to be that the way of mastery says we must learn to understand the distorting power of the way we want things to be. And if I want to be right, and if I want my mind to give me the evidence that so-and-so is wrong or so-and-so is a jerk or so-and-so deserves to be punished, that's exactly what my mind will show me. And in this work, we keep asking, let us pay attention to whether or not we prefer how that feels when our mind creates a negative emotional state or do we prefer how it feels when we ask to be shown ask to be shown something that bypasses my reticular activating system ask to be shown something that bypasses the trauma and drama of my childhood and my family of origin and my cultural conditioning and training. Ask to be shown something that will take me to new levels of perception that expand the loving, gratitude-based, joy-based experience of life. And the more I practice doing that, the better my brain gets at doing just that for me, doing what I've asked it to. 610, is this Susan? Hi, Dr. Tim. This is so amazing that you're talking about this. I feel as if the Sunbird book is doing that. I still need vehicles to to have things change, but he has... I hope I found the right page where he talks about how people who have a belief will find tons of evidence for the belief to be the truth and right. And that's just part of it. But what you're saying, um, just in general, that we don't, like my husband will go into the icebox and he'll say, don't you love it? I called it an icebox. Whoever calls it that anymore. <laughs> and what, <laughs> that's, we still do. Um, he says, um, where are the eggs? And uh, um, I couldn't find them. And they're right there. But he doesn't have to find things. He has this thing about not being able to see or find something. And this happens a lot. And I'll just say, go and look again. I could get them for you, but I know they're in there because I was just in there. And he goes in, and I say, okay, just peel your eyes and open your mind, <laughs> you know. And he says, oh, my God, they're right in front of me. And that happened to me yesterday. Anyway, I don't need to go into that. But on several levels, the Sunbird book is getting a shift in the brain. And I'm thinking that this... I think one of the reasons his book is so um, effective, to me anyway, is that he 
he goes underneath all of the experiences that we can have. And you were talking to Doug the other day, a couple of days ago, about different ways of looking at an experience and going beyond looking them as good and bad. And then I said something, and Doug said, well, then you've just said on a deeper level that that's good. And I had, because it seems as if Sundberg is saying, it's all so wonderful that we're here. And it's wonderful that we get these painful, sometimes painful challenges. This is what we asked for. This will bring us to a deeper understanding of the working of the universe, a more profound connection with everything else, etc. cetera. Um, and I, I do love that he does that, but I, I, for some reason I believe him and feel as if I can really apply what he says, whereas before I'd think that's too hard for me, but who knows? I mean, the Course in Miracles and the Way of Mastery were all preparation for this, and this may lead me back to those books and prepare me to read those books with different eyes, too. It isn't that one's better than another. Exactly. But, um, That's how that system works. Yeah. It's a cycle of growth. It's, and I encourage mm-hmm. you not to believe him or anybody else, but experiment for yourself. See yeah. how it feels and how you prefer living in direct observation challenging the thought that you're just physical, experimenting with asking to be shown something from a different level of awareness, and watch whether or not you prefer the results you get when you do that. And it's it's hard to know what caused the shift. Like you gave me a mind shifter. It's safe and healing for me to believe that I'll never know consciousness for all eternity after I dropped my body. And I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and there was no direct connection. But I was reading the Sunberg book at the same time and realizing that even my thoughts, which are so painful, are part of my experience, which is going to get me to a better place later on. The whole thing shifted. I Knock on wood, I hope it lasts, but I have had that fear has totally gone away. I'm actually excited about dying, which is another whole thing. I don't want to hurry it up or anything, but I'm thinking, I'm curious about it. I, I'm um, excited even about it. And that's, that's a, a pretty nice powerful shift. That's a pretty it powerful is shift. It's huge. It's huge. Anyway, I could go in 20 directions because I just could. I wanted to chime in there, and so I'll I'll just get quiet again, and you can keep on talking. But on page 114, I think that's what it is. There's a whole couple of pages about how we we set up our reasons for believing that what we know is true, and then. They are true to us, but I'm not wording it very well, but I've been reading this with particular interest because one woman is leaving our, has left really, left our Zoom group because we are politically different than she is, and yet we're really well divided. I mean, we have anti-vaxxers and vaxxers, and we have, I don't know if there are Democrats and Republicans. We haven't talked about that directly, but something about our stance on things has 
she has felt alienated from the group. We were talking about the vaccination at one point, and she's very much against having them. And she shrugged and said, well, just do your research. And I thought, there it is. That's what Sunberg is talking about. She did her research, and she came up with great reasons, convincing reasons, why having a vaccination is a bad idea. And it helped me understand her better. I want to get her back so we can meet again on a deeper level and really enjoy each other's company again. But I don't want to hound her because I'm the facilitator and she can leave if she wants to. So I haven't said anything to her. At one point she said, we should talk, I'll call. And she hasn't called. So I'm just, you know, watching, see what she does. Well, I think that's so a I real, said you know, I think that's a real good observation that when people say, do your research, or I've done my research, that's exactly what mm-hmm. Christian Sundberg is talking about. Mm-hmm. They've told their brain, show me where to find the evidence for this point or that point, and when they've read enough of that evidence, they've locked it in as their belief. Yeah. And we all do that, unless we learn to start backing up and living in the question. Absolutely. And it takes some consciousness to do that. You, you broke up there. It takes, it, it takes what to do that? Consciousness and discipline to do that when you're on right. a really red-hot issue. Yep. So... I love the gorilla story. You had told that years ago, probably because it was a story that fit something else you were talking about, but it was perfect for here. <laughs> well, it's pretty much the same as, you know, it, it, it comes to mind many times. I don't always tell it as often as it comes to mind. But whenever Dr. Michael Rice talks about how the brain is, it, is an evidentiary device, that's mm-hmm. part of the hard science research that backs up what he's talking about the reticular activating system. There's a game that they play at parties. I've been to a couple of parties. I just hate party games. But in any way, similar, you're asked to name all the things that a certain person was in the room a while ago. Were they wearing earrings and what were they like? Or what were they wearing? And here you go listing all the things you could imagine that you saw or you think you saw or you really did saw. And then they come back and say, did any of you notice the stuffed bear that was in the chair near where this person came? Well, we weren't all looking for the bear. Nobody saw the bear. And we all felt duped, but it was a good exercise. A little bit similar. Yeah. Yeah, very much the same. It's a real art, you know, in, if they're doing any kind of training for the police force, police sciences, the FBI, et cetera, they have to train their officers, their um, detectives, et cetera, in the art of observation. Yeah. And they give them all of these exercises to do it, 
and they have one level of success. And then they put them in a high-stress situation, and it all flies out the window. And then they have to do it again and do it again and, Mm -hmm. and train their minds to do that level of high active observation even under high stress situations yeah but we we need to understand if we want to get better and better at our own perception more accurate perception we need to get better and better at understanding the distorting power of the way we want things to be. That's the way the Course in Miracles says it. Yep, that's a great way to put it. Now, this ties into one of my favorite quotes from Guy Finley where he says, when you don't want anything, from somebody, they can't lie to you. When wow. you want, when you want something from somebody, they can lie to you because your wanting will distort your perception. You will miss the warning signs that they're not being completely forthcoming. It's the same fundamental observation to my eye and ear with a different focus. So what you're saying, you mean if you don't want or expect anything from someone, you will be able to tell if they are lying to you? Yes, right. Yeah. The, The distortion of what you want won't be there distorting your perception. Oh, boy, that's so interesting. You'll see things more clearly when you don't want anything from them, when you're just interacting with them from this neutral state. But as soon as you want something from somebody, you're, you, you have your reticular activating system set for indications that they're either complying with what you want or resisting. And that part of your mind that distorts your perception will kick in. Wow. That leads to so many questions. Can I ask you a Yes, yes. Um, my middle grandson, um, my daughter's middle boy, has has been harsh with us when he gets very anxious. He gets pretty nasty. And I have come to believe, I understand that that's his fear. I also have been saying, I'm not talking to you when you speak to us that way. Let's just hang out until you settle down and then we'll talk. He finally is getting it on some level. And yesterday he called and he said, I I really love you guys and I'm not going to talk about that money issue anymore, and I really love you guys. And I'm observing this, and I'm thinking, this has to do, am I neutral enough to 
to be able to tell whether he's telling the truth. I just think he's learning a behavior that might get him the money. I, I don't well, trust him. Well, here, here's the, the key to that is just don't sweat it. Don't yeah. sweat the words. Just mm-hmm. watch the behaviors. Yeah. So you don't promise a bunch of things yeah. that are based on, well, he said he has changed this and that. Yeah. Because just words. And as we all know, actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm considering his history is a wide swing between the the young boy that he was that I experienced as being a real sweetheart. And then he began getting into, when he began to turn around 18 and 19, he developed this whole other side. And I've been afraid that he might not be okay in his life and that he might be a lot like his dad and have problems like his dad, and then I wonder about whether he's just doing this because he is mimicking his dad. That's how you okay, do things. So, okay, but so yeah. I, when I deal with people like you and they say, because I'm afraid this mm-hmm. or that. Right. I say, okay, that that negative emotional state, whether it's fear or hostility, will distort your perception. So the primary thing that I work with people, parents and friends of people like this who say, oh, I'm afraid of this and that, the primary work I engage with them is to dismantle their negative emotional state. To understand as we do in this work. Well, we understand as we do in this work that if my mind is telling me I'm afraid that so-and-so is not going to have a good life or is going to end up yeah. like their uh, their uncle or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm generating yeah, that fear inside my mind-body energy system completely independent of what's happening with them. And it will distort my perception. And it might right. hurt that, them, actually. It, no, that's not, we're not so worried about it hurting them. We're just talking about it's going to distort my perception. And here, mm-hmm. the way of mastery, or, or the Course in Miracles says, you must understand the distorting power of the way you want things to be. So if you're saying, oh, I just want him to be safe, and I just want him to have a happy life, and I'll know he's having a happy life if he does this, and if he doesn't act like his dad, and I'll know that if he acts like his dad, that means he's not going to have a good life, etc. Think about Think about that in the context of that statement from the Course in Miracles that we must understand the distorting power of the way we want things to be. So now, based on that fear, set of thoughts that I'm pouring my mind energy into that is generating the fear, I'm going to distort my perception. I'm going to see 
reasons to be more afraid. I'm going to see, oh my God, he is just like his dad. So what's the most important thing for me to do in that situation? Dismantle the the thought structure, dismantle or cease pouring my mind energy into that pattern because that's what's creating my emotions, not the other person and their actions. And I'm not saying that everything gets better and the world is healed and we live happily ever after when that happens. I'm just saying that when that happens, my perception can be more accurate. Mm. I I remove some of the primary factors that distort our perception. So going right back to the moment where he said, I love you guys and I appreciate all you're doing for me, etc. I was standing there hearing that and thinking I was neutral. But really what I was thinking is, oh, you're just buying time, trying to butter us up. Your other self's going to pop out and it's going to go bad again and you're going to be in trouble. Boy, a lot of bad stuff. So you're saying be totally curious and as if this is the first thing you ever heard from that guy. That doesn't mean, though, being a doormat or an idiot. No, no, no. See, I I said, I followed it up with, listen, you don't pay so much attention to the words, you pay attention to the actions. And if he comes Mm -hmm. and says, oh, I am so sorry, I recognize it now, etc., then you say, okay, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, We'll see, you know, I'm... I, I'm, I'm glad you're willing to consider that possibility. We'll see how how you're able to act going forward. I wouldn't even dare and say then, that to him. I would just think it, though. Even just thinking okay. it would be good, right? That's exactly. And 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 you're you're more than welcome to say it to him too, because in this situation, if you're the grandparent, you're in the role of teacher and mentor whether he likes Mm -hmm. it or not well i know in this or i no i don't know i assume that he is trying to get some extra money out of an estate where the money isn't going to the grandkids at all it would be going to my son and daughter but he's hoping to put himself in the front of the line to be a recipient because he's an artist and he knows he's not going to make much money in his life talk about a, a mental setup but anyway, our plan is now pretty much set. We're not changing our minds. And he knows what the original setup was, and he wants us to change it. And he's, I, I imagine he's being really nice so that we will change it, and we're not going to change it. But I'm not going to tell him that. I'm not going to talk to him about any of that at all. So I know I'm going on a tangent, and this is a very individual issue. But it's the same um, kind so of thing that many of us well, face. Let's see how it goes. If you continue, if you continue being good, the implication is we'll change our minds. We're not going to. Right, and but then you know the 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 idea is that you can just acknowledge his words and say thank you. Yeah, I did do that, but I was pretty much astounded. And Tim said, Tim Bingham said, I've never heard him talk like that before. I said, well. So, 
but I got us off what you were talking about, which was so it was exciting. Um, would you consider oh. reading sections of the Sunberg book the way you did with the Way of Mastery? Any essay that jumps yeah, out? Yeah, especially uh, uh, well, especially if one of them jumps out at you and you send me a link about it, I'd be happy to. Oh, okay. All right, good. I am going to turn on the microphone for 760. Is this Anne? Yes, it is. Good morning Welcome. or afternoon. Susan. Um, hi. I want to go back to... Hi. I want to go back to um, the example that you gave earlier, um, Dr. Kim, about um, the, seeing the gorilla. I just had that experience, so it was nice to hear an explanation um, I had mentioned to a friend about noticing the roses in our community. It's a gated community in the landscaping. They keep up really well. Anyway, and he says, I didn't see any roses. So then I mentioned to him specifically where they were, and then he went around the next time he talked to me, and he says, oh, my gosh, there's roses everywhere. And I go, so I think it's like you said, when – I also, it seemed like they were also being specific about where the gorilla was. And so I was being specific about where the roses were, so then he saw them everywhere. But yep. before that, he had never seen them. And they've always been there, like you said. They didn't, they didn't just put them in. Yep. So, um, so that's, that was great. Anyway, um, and then Susan, I think I heard you getting that about coming over to the other side about, you know, not um, stopping the fear about dying was when I heard your comment about um, sharing or responding to what Jeannie um, shared about her dad, you know, and the closeness of all of that. And it was like, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was a comment that said, oh, my gosh, okay, she's coming to the other side, (laughs) meaning you, Susan, that um, because your comment was, Believe it sounded like you were believing that you know he had an afterlife, and so anyway, I just wanted to share that it was coming out that you were changing. So there you go. Does that make sense? Susan? I don't. Yeah, it does make sense. I I wasn't. I was already in a different place, but I'm still very skeptical about methods of communicating. If if Jeannie says she did still point breathing and got in touch with her dad, my mind goes right. to thinking that's wishful thinking. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? And maybe you're making that up to comfort, comfort yourself. Now, that doesn't mean I'm as afraid of death as I was before, but I'm still a hard sell on some of the testimonials I see. I, see. Um, I often just say, well, okay, yeah. I don't know what to do with them. Well, you don't really need to do anything with them. No, you don't need to do anything with them. It's somebody else's experience. Right. There is nothing, there's no, you know, um, owner's manual for the human mind or whatever that says you have to have exactly the same experience as everybody else. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a great consolation, and maybe she felt a. It sounded as if she felt a real 
connection. I guess it was partly envy. <laughs> I don't think I've had that. But, Dr. Tim, isn't it the same thing with the resonance thing? I mean, whether you're here in an earthly body or whether you're not. So if you're resonating something, I don't know. Isn't what the same thing as resonance thing? Well, like what Jeannie was talking about. Um, You know, at the same time, she felt like she was communicating with her dad. But isn't it the same thing when we're resonating we walk into a room, you know, and we're resonating love, even though there might not be, um, there might be something negative going on. But if we keep our position of love, then things start to change. So, would it matter if somebody is like passing at the time or just passed from their earthly body that the resonance would still be there if we're generating it? Like, does that make sense? It makes sense, sure. Um, is it the truth? I have no idea. Right? Is okay. it is is there any yeah. truth to somebody having connection with someone after they've passed? I have no idea. Do I know people who absolutely believe that they've had connection, that they've been getting messages? I do know a lot of people. And these are intelligent people, these aren't, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, people running around wearing tinfoil hats to protect them from imaginary waves from some alien, you know, abductor. These are real high-functioning, intelligent people, and they've had different experiences than I have. And that's perfectly okay. That's the point I was trying to make is I don't need to be okay or not okay with it. It's not my experience. And it's perfectly okay for other people to have their own experience. Got it. Yep. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, So, Linda, sorry we didn't have time to get to you. I will mute you so that you can um, listen in to the second half of the show. Um, The second hour today is going to be another recording. Michael and Jeannie are still traveling. And I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. And Jeannie has asked me to play again this review of um, a show I did. um, I think it's from... um, called Holding Space. It was a question that came from a an email that someone had sent me. So here is your second hour. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free on the Internet through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website, whyagain.org, if you go to that website and click on the Start Here link in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, 
His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? That chapter of the book contains a narrative description of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 18 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into an effective part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's free. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it out, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to click on it, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet, an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through that worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those repeatedly, they can serve as a tutorial for you to help you get the most out of the tool. And we hope people do that soon and often primarily because it's been our experience that it improves the quality of people's lives and relationships when they use these tools. And secondarily, it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, testimonials. And if you have any of that to share with us, you can either email us. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. W-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. Or you can give us a call if you happen to be available to call us live during the show. 563-999-3581 is our number. And then when you call that number, if you press the number 1 on your phone... It will put the icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we really appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be of service. That's the reason Michael and Jeannie are spending all the money they spend on it and rearranging their schedule five days a week to be here to help, what Michael used to say is, to help make these tools available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet, whether they had any money to pay for it or not. And his guidance over the years has been that that's his purpose in life, that's part of his secondary purpose, and so he's pursuing that with whatever energies he can muster to do that, and you can assist him in that by showing up here on your own or forwarding this information to others that you think might be benefit from it. So we're engaging in 
talking about these tools. We're engaging in reading other things that are similar and have a lot of overlap and presenting those and we're talking about them or showing videos or audios of this kind of work in our support groups. And one of the reasons for that is that in the very first four-hour audio of Dr. Michael Rice's teachings that I was given by a friend of mine from high school years ago, Michael talked about how when you have when you're faced with learning something new and something that has depth to it and that is different than anything that you've been exposed to before. Michael said the more different ways you hear about it from more different perspectives the quicker you will understand what there is to learn and the deeper your knowledge will be, the deeper your understanding will be. So in that original talk, he said, so we're going to talk about this work from a psychological perspective, from a hard science physics perspective, from a religious perspective, from a social perspective, and By the time you're done hearing about what all of these different disciplines have to say about this process or the core of a process like this, you'll understand more, more quickly, and at a deeper level. And I've found that to be true myself, and I've taken it to heart, which is why we present stories that Guy Finley might tell or things we learned from the way of mastery or things that we learned from the teachings of uh, somebody like Dale Allen Hoffman or the work of um, Diedrich Wolfsack with his six-step forgiveness process or Byron Katie's work with her The Work, which is questioning every negative thought we have because she's understood, she's observed for herself that she only suffers when she believes her negative thoughts. I had somebody email me this morning asking for some clarification. So here's a person who, when she first got introduced to this work, she didn't she hadn't heard of the term holding space for someone. And she says, if you could expand on the meaning of holding space for self and others along with tools, what things can one say in the midst of a conflict to hold space while being mindful about the process of rescuing or enabling along with some examples? She says that she chanced upon uh, one of Matt Kahn's talks or little uh, classes. I think she said it's on the Sounds True website. And the title of his um, offering was All for Love, 
the transformative power of holding space. And you can find it at mattkahn.org, K-A-H-N, all one word, M-A-T-T-K-A-H-N.org. And what she's listened to so far says there appear to be connections to the work we do here. Well, so if you've never heard a phrase like holding space before or being the space of love before, again, they're just words. And one of the things we teach in this work is that it is directly observable that the words have no meaning in and of themselves until a human being has information stored in his or her memory banks for that word. And over time, we enrich, expand, or contract the meaning we give to various words, which is just fundamentally... The word itself has no meaning unless there's a human mind that's attributed meaning to it. So quite literally, every language, all the words that we use, they've been made up by other human beings. And when they're made up by human beings, they attribute certain meanings or sequences of behavior with that word. You know, one of the examples I that, that has stuck with me over the years is there's an auditorium full of people and it's, you know, one of those tiered auditoriums so that the, the chairs are stacked in, in an escalating, rising way, going away, up, and so as you look down at the podium on the stage, there's a lecturer giving a lecture, and all of a sudden, from stage left, a person runs out and starts yelling excitedly in a language, let's say this is happening here in America, in Russian. And there's nobody in the auditorium that understands Russian. But the person is gesturing wildly and getting more and more agitated until she runs off, and then drags back a person who is her translator and keeps saying the same thing. And the translator says, there's a fire in the building. Instantly, everybody leaves. But the person was saying words that to her meant there's a fire in the building, but the people in the audience had no content in their brain no meaning in their brain for the words she was saying. They certainly had meaning in their brain for the event of fire burning the building. But the words have no meaning. The content of the brain, memory, life experience of the person who hears the word or receives the vibration of the word that's what carries the meaning. You know, sometimes people come from families where there's a lot of good-natured joking and teasing and it's very loving and respectful. And, and so when somebody laughs, 
around one of those people who comes from a family where there's a lot of love and good-natured laughter, and then the response of the person who hears the laughter when they come from a very loving, good-natured family is they feel lighthearted. They enjoy the laughter. And there are other families where they're very edgy, they're very angry, they're very sarcastic, they're very cutting, and the laughter is always laughing at someone. It's always an insult. It's always, you know, if somebody takes a fall, then they're laughed at and ridiculed. So when that person hears laughter, they get tight and tense and defensive. So the laughter doesn't carry the meaning. The laughter is just a vibration of sound that resonates the meaning that's already in the mind of the person who hears that vibration. So what does it mean to hold space for somebody? It means different things for different people. What does it mean to hold the space of love for somebody? It means different things to different people. As they have been introduced to it over time, by, you know, the layers of meaning are loaded in from the content of the word and the words that are said around it, and also the emotional attachment strong positive, neutral, or strong negative that the individual has for the person who's trying to tell them what it means. So I've had a number of people in my life who are, uh, they're very liberal in their thought process and they're very open to energy work and things that aren't able to be measured so clearly by scientific instruments, but a, a lovely emotional experience and they like the kinds of people that go to those events where they're doing love exchanges or they're doing sending energy healing work. But I've also had a lot of people who just they turn up their noses at that. And they say, oh, there's nothing to this. This is quackery. And if it's not hard science provable with some kind of a device that I can measure it on, then it doesn't really exist. And so if somebody from either of those two schools comes to me and starts telling me about holding the space for somebody and it's not based in what our scientific instruments can measure. It's about intention or about emotions. Or Then the one person is going to receive it far more willingly and with a positive set of uh, uh, tunings and, and, and flavors to it. And the other person is going to receive it very judgmentally and negatively or push it away altogether. Or write it off as... as um, worse than useless, right? Harmful because it distracts people from the real science and what's really going on. So what, what makes the most sense to me 
is um, people like Pierre Pradervan when he talks about going into yourself, turning the focus of your attention into your heart space, into the space within you, wherever it's located, where you feel emotions strongly. And, you've, and hopefully you'll tune into feeling positive emotions strongly. And the way you do that is you bring up memories. You bring up thoughts that are specifically tied to certain memories that had a positive emotional feeling to them. And you practice strengthening that energy, that emotional energy state within you by concentrating on the thoughts part of or associated with the memories of the physical, visceral experience of this loving, safe, calm, happy, joyful these are various words that just have different meanings for people too, but those kinds of things, those kinds of energy vibrations. And so he talks about blessing and and doing a blessing from that space, going within yourself and generating that loving energy feeling within your energy field, within the body that we call, the energy field that we call the body, and generating that loving energy and then holding an image of the person, regardless of what kind of behavior they're exhibiting, holding an image of them in their highest and best and sending the energy of that image, visualizing them in their highest and best, sending it through that loving energy, the deepest, most viscerally felt loving, safe positive energy you can. That is a really good example of holding space for somebody. So for me, over the years, as I've worked with this, it makes a lot of sense for me to say, I'm holding space, holding the space of love for someone or holding space for them when I refuse to buy into any negativity that they may be demonstrating or blaming me of. And I visualize and feel as loving, as calm, as safe, as joyful energy as I can within me, and I project that into my image of this person whether you want to call it sending them a blessing of that or holding the space for that, or whether you want to call it this ancient Aramaic process of humility, which is defined as the ability to see the highest and best in another person and then choose to cooperate only with that. Yes, they might be raging at somebody. Yes, they might be crying and overwhelmed with depression. Yes, they might be running around in an anxiety or panic attack. And yet, within that person, there is the potential to be so much more. There is the potential to be the extension of the energy of creation in form. There is the the potential to be loving and respectful and patient and kind. And so, holding the space for that person 
one way to talk about holding the space for that person is for me to identify the highest and best in them and then just send my mental emotional energy out toward them from that highest and best place because the highest and best place in me is the same as the highest and best place in them and send loving thoughts and energies to them from that space of of energy, of vibration, of emotion. So that's one way to think about holding space for someone. It weaves into the ancient Aramaic definition for humility. It dovetails very nicely with things that Guy Finley talks about and Matt Kahn talks about. And it's really something that over the years I've had to work a lot at because it's not something I was trained to do. It's not something my culture holds out as a priority. It's not something that I, it, rarely in groups, whether it was classes or individual group meetings, was I encouraged to do that with and for other people. And so it's a practice of where I focus my mind energy and a practice of alertness and sensitivity to what I'm focusing that mind energy on because as we talk about so often in this work, what I focus my thought energy on amplifies whatever I'm focusing it on. Mike Dooley says, thoughts become things, so choose the good ones. The way of mastery says, you don't experience anything that you haven't chosen. You experience only the effects of your choice. So choose to focus on loving thoughts. You start to have the experience of the energy fields shifting in you towards loving, towards peaceful, calm, gentle, towards appreciation, towards gratitude. Now, the email asks, so, you know, are there examples? Are there tools for doing that? Well, I suppose that the tools, if someone was to ask me, what tools can I use for this? The the primary tool is the choice of where I focus my thought. The primary tool is my willingness. The primary tool is vigilance. The primary tool is my choice and I don't have to buy into the image somebody else is holding for themselves or me. So someone can come at me and say that I am rude and I'm angry and I'm impatient and I'm, I don't have to buy into that. Someone can come at me and demonstrate the behaviors that I think are in alignment with being rude and being impatient and being angry and being hurtful. But I don't have to buy into that that's their true essence. I can understand that anybody who's putting out those behaviors that would be in alignment with these negative emotional states or judgments that I've been conditioned to make, that that's not their true nature. I can choose to focus on a higher, more integrated nature for consciousness and understand that every human being has consciousness, 
and I can choose to pour my mental emotional energy into cooperating with the highest and best in the other person. You know, one of the things we talk about extensively in my work in the private practice and in uh, the support groups is that whatever comes out of somebody's mouth is about them, not about the people around them or the world around them. And it's not possible for me to be in peace, in contentment, in gratitude, in appreciation, in affection, in a state of patience and comfort, and then have angry, hurtful, insulting words come out of my mouth. It's not possible because they're not in me. If I'm sitting here feeling gratitude and appreciation and comfort and patience and respect, then that's all that can come out of me. So anytime I hear or see a raised tone, a tightness, a tension, a yelling, a swearing, a name-calling, an insult come out of a person, I can instantly know that there's pain, fear, or sadness in that person. And it is such that they either choose not to deal with it within themselves or they don't have the capacity to deal with it within themselves. One of the ways the Way of Mastery talked to about it to us in, a, in an earlier lesson was I can choose to understand that anybody who does me wrong, steals my stereo, breaks into my apartment, steals something, calls me a bad name or whatever, is another being of brilliance and light, another soul on the journey with me, and they simply haven't yet discovered or they temporarily forgotten their ability to get whatever they need out of life without hurting anybody else. And if I understand that, if I breathe into it, if I observe directly what is directly observable, then I instantly change the energy that I am offering the moment and them in the moment and the situation. If I understand that if I go to judgment, if I go to a negative emotion, if I go to anger or fear or sadness in relation to another person, I'm feeling those things. And it's not caused by anything outside of me. We're just reading about this in Lesson 17. 100% responsibility. for every emotion I experience. In Lesson 3, Way of Mastery is talking about the, the, the word of forgiveness. And the word of forgiveness defined in Lesson 3 as forgiveness means to choose to release another from the perceptions you have been projecting upon them. It is, therefore, an act of dismantling one's 
false projections. Now, I'm paraphrasing it a bit because I'm just distilling out the essence of, of this teaching. So every time I choose to see somebody as bad or wrong, I could choose instead the insane way of looking at the, them according to the world and looking upon that person as one who's just done an act as a brother or sister who is crying out for help and healing. What if I chose to look upon them as one who does not know how to live in this world without being of the world, one who does not know the way to dismantle their false perceptions, the way to self-forgiveness, one who does not know the truth of the light that lives within them, one who does not recognize their great power to create whatever they want in a way that's not hurtful to anyone else. If I chose to look upon them with compassion rather than reactivity, that is, a, for me, that's a wonderful definition of holding space. I choose to see them as being just like me. Holding space Another way to talk about holding space is one of the, my favorite definitions for the word namaste. And I read this in one of the Ram Dass books back in the 70s. And he says, namaste. I honor the light within you. I honor the place in you of light and peace and love. I honor that place in you where when you go to that place in you and I go to that place in me, there's only one of us. Namaste. So if I hold on to that recognition that we are all sparks of the same light of consciousness and we're all traveling around in this energy field within energy fields within energy fields and none of us knows at an intellectual level much of anything compared to all that's going on in each and every moment. That's another good definition for me of holding the space of love or holding space for someone. Another way I talk about it is to say the only significant difference between me or, and you or anybody who's ever lived is the degree to which we're able to live in the realization that we are all the same. And for those who know the word Cohen, that's, that's a Cohen. How can the only difference be that we're all the same? The only difference between you and anybody who's ever lived is the degree to which you and or those people around you are able to live in the realization that we are all the same. That's another definition of holding the space for someone, holding the space of love, seeing that all there is is creation, which is another word for love. All there is is the energy that's giving rise to consciousness that's giving rise to everything physical that's giving rise to every thought and every emotion and every physical sensation you have it's all part of the flow of life 
and being able to be aware of that in the moment rather than being distracted by, well, there's a pain in my toe or I keep having thoughts about how bad this divorce is going to be or I keep having thoughts about how little money there is in my checking account or I keep having thoughts about what I heard this person say the other day about psychologists being idiots and I'm, I'm chewing on it like a dog with a bone angrily. Rather than focusing on any minute aspect of life or my experience of life, if I step back and breathe and soften and open myself to questioning, how might I be a part of the flow of life in this moment in a way that leads to compassion, gratitude, appreciation, patience, healing, strength, connection, awareness. How might I, dot, 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 how might I be a blessing for myself and others? That's another mechanical way to keep my thoughts focused on holding the space of love, holding space for someone. I can repeatedly ask, What's mine to do here to bless myself and others? What's going on here that is on the periphery of my senses that I might tune into that would allow me to be more respectful, more patient, more compassionate? All of these things, I would say, are things that are in the folder in my mind labeled holding space or holding the space of love for someone or sending someone a blessing. So this is all from an email that I received asking for clarifying, you know, my thoughts about the phrase and the meaning holding space for self and others and what are tools and what are examples. And one of the most powerful examples was I had a gentleman in my office, and he was he was a very uh, concrete-thinking person. He was a mechanical engineer, um, and he worked on, on boiler systems and um, electrical and water systems in, in a building complex, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of things. He was a uh, he had been a marine. When he was younger, so he had a lot of physical training. He was very strong physically, a very, very um, opinionated individual, a very strong presence. And he had a, um, a situation in his family where their emotions would run high and people would get angry. And, but there was also a lot of affection for each other. There was a lot of... Um, I would do anything for my family kind of energy in this in this family. And yet he had this daughter in her 20s who was um, having some rage issues. And one night there was a rage event. And um, he described it as he was, I mean, gets up very early for work, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And so he went to bed at 9 o'clock and he was sound asleep and all of a sudden, there's this raging 20-something at, at his door, beating on his bedroom door, and he knows enough to 
lock his door when he goes to sleep at night because this kind of thing can happen. Well, this particular night, she wouldn't go away, and he kept saying, well, deal with it in the morning, whatever, and she was something in the kitchen she couldn't find. And so he gets out of bed, angrily throws the door open, pushes past her, goes into the kitchen, finds the thing that she said she couldn't find, throws it on the counter and says, there. Now, unbeknownst to him, she was charging after him because she didn't like that he had pushed her out of the way to get out of his bedroom. And, and so they go tumbling into the pantry and somebody gets bruised and somebody gets scratched. And, and then she decides to call the police. Now, he, as the father understands that his daughter has these emotional issues and says, you know, she would never do well if she got arrested and it would just escalate things and she'd fall apart mentally. So he takes the fall for her and he goes to jail. And then he, you know, comes to therapy to say, okay, I need to change something because clearly things aren't going well in the house. And and I talked to him about a lot of stuff that we've just talked about in this last uh, 40 minutes about how everything that comes out of my mouth is about me and if there's anger or fear or sadness coming out of my mouth any kind of insult or yelling or swearing or name calling coming out of my mouth it means there's pain fear or sadness inside of me and we started talking about breathing and focusing inside and asking how am I creating this emotion it talked about these things and I said now do you understand how if you were doing these things you know, the next time this kind of situation comes up with your daughter, it'll be different. He, and he looked at me like I had three heads, right, because it's maybe our second session. And so I said, well, imagine it this way. Imagine that you're in the, the bed sleeping, and you're awakened because there's loud noises out in the hallway just outside your door, and you shout from your bed, I'm trying to sleep here, please be quiet. And there's more ruckus outside. And so you go and you throw open the door and you find your daughter writhing on the floor in pain. And the, the swearing and the crying out is because she's in pain. Would you yell at her to shut up because you have to go to sleep? Because you have to work in the morning? And he almost launched out of his chair at me. I love my daughter, and his fists were clenched like he's ready to punch me for even insinuating that he might ignore his daughter's pain. And so I said, okay, I get that about you, that you do love your daughter. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you're lying in bed, and she's yelling at you, you've had this input that if she's yelling and swearing and name-calling, it means there's pain, fear, or sadness in her. And so instead of being angry that she's waking you up, you open the door and say, honey, honey, what's the matter? How can I help you when she's yelling at you and swearing at you? Because if she's yelling and swearing at you, it means she is in pain. It's just not the kind of physical pain that we had in the previous example where she's rolling around on the floor. It's mental, emotional, very real pain that people are feeling when they're expressing anger and swearing and name-calling. 
And for any of us who are trained to pay attention to that, especially for those of us who are dealing with people that we have great affection for and or feel responsible for, it becomes much, much easier to shift the lens, right? To see the highest and best in them, to see them as being exactly like me and probably in pain or fear or confusion or sadness. And then it changes my energetic experience <clears throat> and it easily changes what I say and do gives it an entirely different flavor and if you think about this as here's the stew the interaction between me and another person is like a stew it's got all these various ingredients in it it's not just two ships passing in the night we exchange volumes of information with each other all the time before we ever open our mouths there are energetic impressions there are energy fields, there are vibrations, there are histories and intention, there's the resonance of my pain or the resonance of my joy that radiates out from me and interacts with the energy fields of the other people around me. This is very real. And so I can shift what I'm adding to that stew when I step back and realize, oh, there's a tightness or a tension in me, that means I must have a pain or a fear or a sadness in me that I'm not aware of. Let me ask, how am I creating that? Rather than blaming it on the people or things outside of me, even if that someone is standing right in front of me yelling at me. And I focus on the energies that I'm experiencing, therefore the ones I'm creating, they're the same thing, and I shift them to a more calm, respectful, cherishing or gratitude-based energy, appreciation-based energy. And then I speak or act or send emotional energy to the other person from that space. That's all part of, in my mind, the meaning behind the phrase holding space for someone or holding the space of love for someone, or namaste, or understanding that we're all beings of brilliance and light. Every one of us is a being of brilliance and light, and we're either acting from the direct awareness of that being, or we've temporarily forgotten or yet to discover our true nature. So, I thank you, author of this email, for sparking that monologue. And we've got about 15 minutes left, so I will throw it open for comments or questions. 563-999-3581. What does it mean to you? Have, you? have you been exposed to the phrase, holding the space of love, holding space for someone? Do you have a different meaning for it? Are there tools, specific tools you use? I... I meant to add earlier that I will frequently add um, knowledge of the acupuncture meridians and finger rubbing or wrist rubbing or squeezing to stimulate my energy flow so that I don't build up energy related to negative thoughts and the emotions they generate. So I 
I'm thinking in terms of letting this energy flow through me and the EFT tapping or the shortcut of finger rubbing and breath work, you know, doing the breathing that has me extend my exhale for 10 seconds or more that sends that irrefutable message to my physical body that I'm not in danger. I don't need to respond with adrenaline and rapid heart rate and increased blood pressure and increased rapid shallow respiration to oxygenate the blood to get ready for a fight or to get ready to run. So those are other things I would add as tools. The breath and the rubbing the ends of my fingers or the massaging my fingers and or um, gently squeezing the wrist pulse points as tools that help me move into that space of calm and generate those more respectful, gratitude-based, appreciation-based positive energies and thoughts and then extend them to the other person. So 563-999-3581, what are your thoughts about holding the space holding the space of love for someone, being the space of love for someone. Area code 610, is this Susan? Yeah, it's a very good email and a very good talk. Um, My son came up the other day to help me keep that kind of loving space with our grandson Jacob before he finally was sent away to a rehab place and either we didn't do it well enough or something we we were gentle with him and saying things like you know you are under great stress now this must be very hard and he was so there was really nothing we could say that would be perceived by him as holding a loving space he would yell at us like we're manipulating him, we're trying to control him. The background on him is that he tends to trust strangers more than family members, which is what his father did. His father had a tremendous charm and he was very bright and he could attract people. But once they were on an inner circle, a very inner circle like his wife suddenly he didn't trust anymore and a different side of his personality it was really like two people Uh, and his son two oldest sons seemed to have taken this on but the middle one the second to the oldest we're we're afraid that maybe he just can't um, hang on one sec Tim can you handle that Okay. Um, we ended up. You're afraid that maybe he can't what? You were saying you're afraid that he can't what? He can't get well. I know that's a very negative thought. And I'm hoping that the rehab people who are strangers, he may be listening to them. But I'm afraid that when he comes back, we will be 
the inner circle bad guys who have nothing but bad motives toward him. And I'm telling you about some fears that may not even be real, but we ended up having to call the police because he got um, so belligerent. He was trying to beat down the door and we were afraid to have him in the house overnight. We thought he might hurt us and we never got ugly with him at all. But we had to do these things, and I know you would say that's fine. You have to do that sometimes. But holding a space of love is the only and best way even to approach something like this. But sometimes it's just it doesn't seem to have an immediate good effect. And perhaps we weren't holding it purely enough. I felt attacked, um, and I was having to do breathing, and I kept pretty quiet. My son took over. He was very gentle. But then Jacob began attacking him and saying that he was an abuser and he had evil plans for him and we have nothing but ill will toward him. And it it was really an experience with a very mentally ill, I hope it's temporary, person. Um, So anyway, I'm just adding that even though everything you said, I will continue to do, but sometimes it's really hard and it doesn't have obvious good outcomes well that's the uh, I'm glad you went back to that it doesn't have obvious good outcomes and uh, I'm you know I'm put to mind of those world-class philosophers the Rolling Stones and they wrote they wrote how you can't always get what you want but you try sometimes you just might find to get what you need well so it didn't work out the way your mind told you it should work out and yet you don't know it might have been the no, perfect thing, right? It might have yeah. been the perfect thing to call the police, to have them get involved. It might be the perfect thing that your grandson needs to move to the next level of healing for him. We don't know these things. Yeah. And so That's rather true. than being in the, in the space of saying, because I didn't get what I wanted in the moment, because I wanted this person <laughs> to resonate with the love I was sending and just make it be a love fest right then and there and dramatically change their behavior. Because that didn't happen, I say it didn't work. I have really, really confined and constricted this expansive moment of the flow of creation down to a few tiny bits that my mind can understand. But the flow of creation, it, it doesn't... It doesn't get confined. We just mm-hmm. cause pain and and contraction and fear and upset within ourselves because we try to make it conform. Mm-hmm. But, you know, imagine standing in the middle of the Mississippi River and and thinking you're going to say a few words and it's going to reverse course. It doesn't work that way. It's okay that it doesn't work that way. There's this flow of life going on. There's this history that your grandson has had with his dad and his mom and all the various people that he's interacted with through his whole life. All of that was coming together in this moment, and you're not responsible for any of that. You're just responsible for what you do with it. And if you... Mm -hmm. Stand there and stay loving and stay calm and stay gentle and respectful 
And at times, calling the police is the most respectful thing to do. It's a way to try and keep people safe. It's a way to try and keep them from doing damage to themselves and others. And so I'm not saying this, it's all got to be a love fest where we just sit around with flowers in our hair, right? Mm. The, the cow sills song, <laughs> flowers in our hair, you know, flowers everywhere. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm saying mm-hmm. your responsibility in that moment is related to what you feel, think, say, and do, how you're using your mind energy. And if you stayed gentle and respectful and you held limits that excluded continual abuse to you and others, that's one of the most loving things you can do. And then when you look at that and you say, I did this and it didn't work, you've got this myopic view, this tiny slice. How do you know? It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't I didn't get the exact result I wanted, but there's a result. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the other thing we were, we said in a, in a call a few weeks ago, where you said, and and all I could do was this, as though it was some little thing, right? Sending loving energy, sending blessings to people, is a massively powerful thing to do. It's not this tiny little thing. It's not like oh, there's nothing I could do but this. Yeah, that's a lot. That is one of the most Mm. beneficial things anyone can do for anyone, themselves or anyone else. Go into the source energy, which is one of the ways you tap into it is with your mind energy, your conscious logical thought process. Shift it over to something loving, respectful, strengthen it, pour the force of your will into it, and gently, respectfully extend that to yourself and others, that is one of the most powerful things you will ever do. Mm. And just because the the unfolding of events doesn't map out according to the way you would like it to, it doesn't mean it didn't work or something went wrong. You know, I'm I'm telling you this from I'm I'm telling you this from you know direct life experience. I've had you know people in my family. I've I've had a a, a cousin who was you know decidedly younger than me, so much younger that growing up he would call me Uncle Tim. But we were technically just first cousins, and he ended up getting into legal problems that ended him in jail and then eventually prison. Mm. And, you know, if you met him today, you you would you wouldn't say to yourself, "Oh my god, this is such a loser." Right? He has his own business, he makes lots of money, he has an incredibly driven work ethic. Some would say he's a workaholic, but, you know, what does he do? He does nice things for friends and family on a regular basis. He goes out of his way to maintain family connections. How do we know that, you know, if he hadn't ended up getting in trouble and going to prison, that he'd be anywhere near as nice today as he is? We don't know that. Mm. My my own son decided to say he didn't have to follow any rules and ended up 
having jail time at one time. We've talked about that. And and today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more uh, respectful, uh, fun, intelligent, caring person than my son. Wonderful. Does that... Does that mean he had to have that to get there? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that that event, those series of events, didn't ruin his life. And I I could have created a lot more consternation and upset and, and or been motivated to do things that weren't very good for me or anybody else if I'd gone into the deep, dark, oh, woe is me, I can't believe he's doing this, I was a horrible father, everything's lost. If I'd gone into those thoughts, it would not have helped anything. I can tell you that for sure. Mm. So choose the loving thoughts. Choose to see everybody as being on their own path. Choose to understand the power of holding the space or being loving for someone, sending that loving energy out, regardless of what they throw back to you, and watch what happens. We ask people, don't, don't trust this, don't just believe this, be in the observing state, be in the questioning state. See if it works as well for you as it has for so many of these teachers of the great spiritual truths. And then you're living in the moment, you're living from direct observation, and you don't need to be validated from the outside. Good. All right. Well, you've helped us use our last few minutes here. I thank you for the call and raising your hand. And um, I'll mute you so you can listen to the second hour. Many blessings, Susan. And uh, I think it's Anne who has her hand up. We haven't gotten to you yet, but Jeannie will.